You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's Bible reading comes in two parts. The first is from Jeremiah 31, verses 3 to 4. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again, and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Again you will take up your timbrels and go out to dance with the joyful. Then going to Ephesians 5, starting with verses 1 to 14. Follow as God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Then, verse 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, It's good to be together, or kind of together again, uh, to look at God's word. Uh, You might find it helpful uh, to follow along with the outline of my sermon that you can find on the online welcome card that was mentioned earlier. You also might find it helpful to have a Bible open if you've got access to a Bible so you can follow along with the different passages that we'll be looking at from God's Word. Uh, Let's pray before we look at God's Word together. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask this afternoon that you would give us all the help that we need. Help for our minds to be open, our hearts to be open, our eyes to be open, uh, to see your wonderful love for us in Christ your Son and how that love should empower us to love one another. And we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, some of you might know that uh, at times I can be a pretty emotional person. It's not like, you know, I'm not in touch with my feelings at all. Uh, But the truth is, I I do find that, that verbally expressing my love and affection for others isn't something that comes naturally for me. Unfortunately for me, Gabby, my wife, is pretty similar. 
Right, so we're just together, we're not the most lovey-dovey couple when it comes to verbally expressing our affection to one another. But the fact remains, I'm happy to say that I just couldn't imagine life without Gabby. Right, to use the language of the book of Song of Songs in the Bible, Gabby is indeed my beloved and I am hers. Some days I'm sure it's a little bit easier for Gabby to love me as her beloved. I'm not saying it's easy, right? But maybe a bit easier. Right on our wedding day, for example, right? Oh, I think I was looking pretty sharp on our wedding day, pretty lovely, if I say so myself. Right on that day, I imagine it was just a little bit easier for Gabby to think of me as her beloved, to approach me with tenderness and care and affection. Uh, but of course, on plenty of days, on other days, oh, I am not looking so sharp. Right, certainly not lovely. Like earlier this year, we, we had a kind of uh, a pretty epic gastro outbreak in the house. And maybe you're picturing the day, it certainly wasn't pretty. You know, raging fever, massive headache, constant nausea. Uh, yep, uh, Gabby spent the whole day caring for me. Right, even helping clean kind of vomit out of the toilet, all while managing the kids. Why did Gabby do that? Well, because I'm her beloved. Why she wouldn't use that word? She wouldn't say, oh, Aaron, you're my beloved. Right? But as Gabby's beloved, oh, I'm so fortunate that she loves me, uh, yes, when I'm lovely, but, but even more incredibly, when I'm unlovely. I wonder who your beloved might be. It might not be a romantic beloved, but who is it, as it were, has, has captured your heart? Who is it that receives your tenderness and love and affection, uh, really whether they're being lovely or unlovely? Who is it that you delight in, that, that is your treasure, your precious prize? And the incredible truth that we're exploring today is that we as a church are God's beloved I think most of us find that a little bit difficult to understand, a bit hard to accept. You know, we might be able to accept that, that because of Jesus and what he's done, well, God is he's kind of willing to put up with us. Right? Or he's willing, perhaps, to uh, love and, and care for us from a distance, you know, at arm's length. Or maybe even he's willing to draw near to us, but, but when he does, he, he's always got his finger on his nose, right? But because of the horrible stench of our sin. I seem to, to pick up the gastro metaphor again, that just kind of keeps spewing out of us all the time. But is that how God really feels about us, right? His church? Well, no, right? The Bible teaches consistently that we as a church are God's beloved. Right? God draws near to us as his people with incredible tenderness and love and affection. And he does that, frankly, whether we're having a good day or a bad day, right? whether we're looking lovely or unlovely, right? but because we're his beloved. But we as a church have captured God's heart. But we are God's treasured possession, his delight, his prize, the apple of his eye. And that's all true whether we are lovely or unlovely. But how, how is that possible? 
Right? How is it possible for sinful and messed up and flawed and failing people like us to be the beloved of God? And well, or to answer that, as we did last week, well, we've really got to take a deep dive into the very heart of reality, right? where we see uh, that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit has always been the perfect community of love. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, uh, John says, God is love. Which means that love isn't just something that our God does, right? Love is a part of who he is, right? God is love, right? Love as where it is kind of built into God's very nature, as the God who is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, live together in loving community. And one part of the Bible that really gives us a glimpse into this loving community that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit is John chapters 14 to 17. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to open up to John chapters 14 to 17. In John chapter 14, verse 31, for example, we see that Christ God's Son loves his Father. And because of his love for his father, he's committed to doing his father's will. Right? John 14, verse 31. And so in John 17, verse 1, we see that in doing his father's will, the son's ultimate desire is that he would glorify his father. Right? Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Because of his great love for his Father, Christ the Son, wants, as it were, to put the spotlight on his Father. So that absolutely everyone can see how glorious he is. So people can see the abundant riches of his character, his glory. Likewise, in John 15 verse 9, we see that the Father loves the Son. Like Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And the Father loves the Son. So in John 17 verse 24, where we see that because of his love for the Son, the Father has and will glorify his Son. Like Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me, whether that's all Jesus' disciples, to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me. Why? Because you loved me before the creation of the world. You see how this works, that the Son loves and glorifies the Father, the Father loves and glorifies the Son, and the Spirit binds them all together in love and is committed to bringing glory to the Son. So in John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, John 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. All the truth. What does that mean? It means that the Spirit is eager to guide people into a deeper and richer and fuller understanding of who Jesus is. Why? Because in John's Gospel, it's Jesus who is full of grace and truth. It's Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
So what does the Spirit want to do? This is when the Spirit of truth comes. He will guide people into all the truth, a, a comprehensive understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, the Spirit will not speak on his own. Uh, he will speak only uh, what he hears, uh, and he will tell you um, uh, what is yet to come, Jesus says. He will glorify me, and because it is from me that he will receive what uh, I will make known to you. At the Father, Son and Spirit, the God who is three in one, are the perfect community of love. Right? Driven by their love for one another, to constantly delight in and honour and glorify one another. And the incredible thing is that in John chapter 17, verse 26, uh, well, we see that the, one of the central purposes of Jesus' ministry is that the love that, that he knows and experiences from his Father, right, as his beloved Son, uh, might be known and experienced by all his disciples. Right, take a look at John chapter 17, verse 26. Jesus says to his Father, I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known, in order that, right, the purpose of this, it is that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. And the triune God is the perfect community of love, and their plan together is to invite people like us into that community that we might be their beloved. But how is that possible? How does that plan between Father, Son and Spirit unfold? Well, the Father sent his beloved Son, empowered and assured by the Spirit, to die for their beloved. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, God tells his people that he has loved them with an everlasting love. Think about that. Right? It should kind of blow your mind. And there has never, ever been a time in all of human history when God didn't love us as his people. His love for us is everlasting. Right? His love for us uh, has existed since before the creation of this world. Right? That the Father, Son and Spirit before the creation of the world made uh, a solemn agreement with one another to save us as their beloved. How did that happen? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, For he, right, that is God the Father, chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Right? Chose us for what? Well, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. But because of his great love for us, it pleased God our Father to choose us, to predestine us, to be adopted as his beloved children through faith in Christ. Right? So having chosen his beloved children before the creation of the world, God the Father sent Christ, his beloved Son, to save their beloved, to save us. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, right at the moment when Jesus is being baptised at the start of his ministry, the Spirit descends upon Jesus from heaven to empower and assure him in his ministry. 
And the voice of God the Father from heaven says, You are my son whom I love. For you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God the Father sent his beloved son, empowered by the Spirit, to save their beloved. But what qualifications did we kind of need to have to become God's beloved? You know, we must have perhaps been more moral than other people, or more more receptive, or more religious, or maybe more selfless than others. There's got to be have been something that qualified us to be God's beloved, something that made us more attractive or appealing or lovely to, to God. Well, of course not. Right? That's not Christianity. That's kind of works-based religion. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that God's beloved son gave his life for us while we were still sinners. While we were still very unlovely. Open up Romans 5 if you've got a Bible. Romans chapter 5 verse 6. Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ didn't give his life for you because you were particularly attractive or appealing or lovely to him. I mean, he gave his life for you because he loved you, of course. But not because you were lovely. Christ gave his life for you, for us, while we were still spiritually powerless, unable to do anything to save ourselves. We were ungodly, not godly. We were sinners, not saints. The Father sent his beloved Son, empowered by the Spirit, to die for us, to save their beloved. As well as those who by faith in Christ are uh, what the Bible calls in Christ, right? we're united with Christ, we're clothed in Christ, as it were. Uh, well, what's true of Christ is true of us. When God looks at us, he sees Christ his son. So just as Christ is God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased, by God's grace, we are God's beloved children with whom he is well pleased. Which is incredible by itself, right? But how should having this identity as God's beloved children affect how we live our lives? Of course, there are heaps of ways you could answer that. But today, I just want to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, flick to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we see that we are God's beloved children. So we should walk in love to be like him. Now take a look there. Paul says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, right? literally beloved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us uh, as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, and sacrifice to God. Are my beloved children, Ada, Charlie, and Felix, 
Are they still uh, are all basically at an age uh, where they think that almost everything I do is incredibly cool, right? That they'll, they'll soon learn, right? But, but for the moment, I'm enjoying it. Uh, for the moment, they know that, that they love me and they're sure that I love them. Uh, and so as a result, they really want to be like me. Right? They mimic me. They imitate me. That's kind of what Paul's getting at here, right? He's saying that as God's beloved children, we should express our love for him and our experience of his love for us by wanting to be like him, by imitating him, by walking in the way of love. I mean, in our culture, that word love can be a little bit tricky to define. What does it mean? Well, Paul explains what he means in verse 2, doesn't he? He says, what I mean by love is loving in the same way as Christ loved us. By Christ who gave himself up for us as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. You might hear that and think, well, that's a pretty gruesome display of love, right? Giving your life for someone on the cross. But when you think about it again, the reality is that this is the nature of all true love. All true love kind of involves this idea of substitutionary sacrifice. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. Let's say, for example, you're caring for a friend who's having pretty deep and real emotional struggles. You meet up with them and you know that you could choose to preserve and protect your own emotional energy. And there's absolutely a time and place for doing that. But you also know that if you love them as your friend, there's a sense in which you'll be willing to sacrifice some of your emotional energy for the sake of their emotional health. It's about kind of substitutionary sacrifice. Or some of you perhaps are parents with children who are sick at the moment or struggling to sleep for whatever reason. Who knows what reason? And, of course, you could, again, preserve your own physical and emotional health by perhaps putting some heavy-duty earplugs in your ears and leaving them to cry a bit more at night. So I would never advocate that sort of thing. But, you know, let's say you did do that. But that's not what we do, is it? Right, as parents, night after night, we're compelled by our love for our kids, uh, in a sense, to sacrifice our physical and emotional health for the sake of their physical and emotional health. This is what true love looks like, isn't it? It's giving of yourself for others, just as Christ did for us. We are God's beloved children, so we should walk in love to be like him. Second, we are Christ's beloved bride, so we should walk in holiness to please him. And of course, this theme of God's people being his bride isn't something that's new in the New Testament, right? In the Old Testament, in books like Hosea or Ezekiel, for example, that the sin of God's people is kind of graphically, graphically portrayed as this kind of brazen act of adultery, right? of God's people kind of prostituting themselves to other gods, right? God's people are his beloved bride. Likewise, here in Ephesians 5, we, as God's people, are described as his bride, as the beloved bride of Christ. Take a look in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Paul says, 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Christ loved the church, his bride, by giving himself up for us on the cross. And so Christian husbands are called to love their brides, their wives, giving themselves up for them each and every day. Well, we could talk a lot about what that might look like in Christian marriage, right? But for today, I just want us to see that we as a church are Christ's beloved bride. We're his bride. So we should be faithful to him. And earlier in the, in the chapter, Paul describes that faithfulness as, uh, as <clears throat> uh, the need for that faithfulness as us walking in holiness now. Right? Walking in holiness in a way that pleases Christ our Lord. Take a look at Ephesians 5 verses 7 to 10. Paul says there, therefore, do not be partners with them. Right? That is, don't be in close fellowship with the world around us that's in spiritual darkness. Right? That's not walking in the light of Christ. Right? Why? Well, look at verse 8. For, right? because you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That, that's Christ the Lord. Live as children of light. Literally, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, as Christ's beloved bride, we should walk in his light, but not in darkness. We should walk in holiness, in purity, in ways that are pleasing to Christ. Well, we, this is not to earn Christ's love. Well, we know that we're Christ's beloved bride. So right now, as we live our lives, we're compelled by our experience of his wonderful love for us and to live a life of holiness that pleases him. And as we walk in holiness now, we can be assured that Christ will present us as holy later. I'll take a look at verses 26 and 27, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Christ loved his church, we're told, and gave himself for her, ultimately, verse 26, to make her holy, right? cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. I've officiated at quite a few weddings by now, and I've got to say that at every one of them, the bride looked, well, they looked stunning. Whether they'd washed, oh, which was a good start, you know, have a shower. Of course, they hadn't just washed, they'd kind of got their makeup on, they got their hair done in a special way, they had their beautiful dress, they had their jewellery on. You know, they just looked Magnificent. They look stunning. They look like a, a radiant bride and they were pleasing, very pleasing to their husband. But we all know that even the most stunning brides don't look like that forever, right? Over time, maybe, maybe even overnight, they get stains, wrinkles, blemishes. Right? But here Paul's saying, not Christ's bride, right? no, not the church. Right on the great wedding day when Christ returns, what's going to happen? We will be presented to him 
as his radiant bride forever. Look at the images there. We'll be completely holy, right? permanently pure and blameless. Like right? completely cleansed right? after a lifetime, as it were, of bathing in Christ's word. And completely radiant, right? Without stain or wrinkle or blemish, right? And we'll be like that, not just on the outside, but on the inside, right? Not just for a day, but forever. But we are Christ's beloved bride, so we should walk in holiness to please him. A third, we are God's beloved people, so we should be beloved to one another. In Colossians 3 verse 12, Paul says to the church in Colossae, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, right? holy and beloved to God, Likewise, in Romans 1 verse 7, Paul writes, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Or Jude 1 verse 1 says, To those who have been called who are loved in God the Father. Right? We as a church are God's beloved people. Right? We are his treasure, his delight, his precious prize. So, so into our, since our church is beloved to God, uh, we should be beloved to one another. And which is why the New Testament repeatedly has Christians referring to other Christians as beloved. But in the NIV, NIV sometimes that gets a bit lost, right? translated as dearly loved or dear friends. You can see lots of examples of it in the book of 1 John, right? in particular chapters 3 and 4. Right? We are God's beloved people. So we should be beloved to one another. But what does that look like? I've already said that I don't tend to use the word beloved to describe others. What does it look like for us to be beloved to one another? Let me suggest three things. First, uh, loving, uh, loving church, loving your brothers and sisters as God's beloved uh, means loving them even when they're unlovely. We've already seen that God didn't love us because we were lovely. He loved us even when we were messy and broken and sinful, unlovely. So when we as a church behave towards one another in ways that are indeed messy and broken and sinful, when we hurt one another, we're still called to love one another. Oh, which is not to say, well, I want to be abundantly, really, really over-the-top clear about this. Right? It's not to say that you're not allowed to have a conversation with a brother or sister in which you point out how their sin and mess and brokenness has hurt you. Right? You, you can have those conversations in love. Right? We talked about that last year in our series on Matthew 18 and all the peacemaking principles. Right? But it is to say, and then as a general principle, we shouldn't make our love for our brothers and sisters conditional on them being lovely enough for our liking. Right? Because the reality is, the reality is that none of us are that lovely. And we're all going to have moments when we're unloved. Right? Loving our church as God's beloved means loving your brothers and sisters even when they're unloved. A second, loving our church as God's beloved means loving your brothers and sisters even when it's costly. 
Right, we saw this earlier in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Right, As God's dearly loved children, we're to follow the example of Christ. Right, his costly love. And what could that look like? Well, it might mean bearing uh, the cost of ordering a, a brother or sister some Uber Eats. Right? Because you know that they're living by themselves during lockdown. And let's face it, it's just really hard for them to be motivated to cook just for themselves. Order them some Uber Eats. Uber Eats. It might mean bearing the cost of uh, continuing to serve during lockdown. We're all tired and some of us need to have a break. It would be great to bear the cost of continuing to serve so that people can continue to be ministered to. It might mean uh, bearing the time cost of sending an encouraging message or a heartwarming card to a different brother or sister each day or each week. It might mean uh, bearing the cost of having that extra Zoom with a brother or sister who's struggling, even though another Zoom meeting is the very last thing that you feel like doing. It could be all sorts of things. But all this is costly, isn't it? It feels like a burden. But at the same time, there's a sense in which it's nothing compared to the cost that God was willing to pray to pay for that brother or sister of yours, for our brothers and sisters, for his beloved. God the Father was willing to send his beloved son to, to give his life that your brother or sister might be his beloved. I reckon the more that you're moved by that love, you'll be willing to love your brothers and sisters. I'll be willing to love my brothers and sisters, you guys, even when it's costly. And third, well, we can be encouraged that when we do this, well, when we love our brothers and sisters as beloved, uh, it will put on display Christ's loveliness. Well, we had this verse last week, John 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But as God's people, we have experienced Christ's love for us, his costly love for us, even though we are unlovely. So we are commanded to love one another as Christ has loved us. And in doing that, we will put on display not our loveliness, but Christ's loveliness right, to all those around us. Right? Because any true loveliness and beauty and glory that comes through us as a church it is only because of the loveliness of Christ shining through us, right? despite all our flaws. But we are God's beloved people, right? despite all our flaws and failings. So we should be beloved to one another. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, we thank you that through the work of Christ, your Son, we are indeed your beloved people. Oh, that we are your beloved sons and daughters, and with us you are well pleased. Our oh, Father, please help us to see your church, to feel towards your church, uh, that they are beloved. They're beloved to us. 
uh, that, they, that your people uh, here at DPC are precious to us, that we treasure them, that we value them, uh, that we delight in them. And we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.